Thank you for listening to audio content from South Cities Church in Lakeville, Minnesota. For more information or resources, visit us online at southcities.church. Let's pray. So, Lord, we need your help again this Sunday. And we're trusting that we're going to get help from your word by your spirit. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see uh, the depth of sin, what it does, and then by the end, see the depth of our Savior's love for us and what that can do. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Just a a couple notes here. if you're a visitor with us, I just always say what we, what we do here at South Cities, we preach right through books of the Bible. So Genesis 34 is where we're at, and what we try to do is preach what is here. And so if you're hanging in with me during the sermon, the, the first about two-thirds of the sermon are going to be pretty ugly, pretty negative, because it's pretty ugly and pretty negative. Um, it's a hard chapter. It's a chapter that I would even say as I... Studied it all week. I got sick of studying. <laughs> I got sick of looking at it. and got sick in my heart to think about it. Um, but we're going to dive in here. We're going to get help. As I was studying this week, I was remembering Genesis 1 to 2 and remembering how good Genesis 1 and 2 were, how fun it was to preach those books for, or those chapters for a couple weeks. Um, humans were gladly in fellowship with, in worship of, in obedience to God. And because of that, there was this perfect, unbroken fellowship and joy with one another. In every direction, fellowship, peace, the word for that in in Hebrew is shalom, this perfect rhythm of life, perfect peace with God, perfect peace with one another. Everything's exactly how it's supposed to be. And then in Genesis 3, uh, sin happened. The, The serpent came and deceived Uh, Adam and Eve convincing them that they could be better gods than God could be, convincing them that they could figure out how to flourish and how humanity could flourish better than God could figure that out. And it broke everything. It it broke the fellowship and worship of God by disobedience, and it immediately broke fellowship and joy with each other, and it's been breaking things uh, ever since then. If you look around at the world, you probably feel a lot more like you're in Genesis Three, as you watch the news, and like you're in Genesis 1 to 2. And if you look around, what you'll see is you'll see rampant, celebrated, cultural disobedience to God, the same sin over and over again, saying, we know how humans can flourish. We know what's good for humanity better than God. And that's worth lamenting. And if we're honest, if we look inside our own hearts, we will see this kind of disobedience. I know better than you, right? I can figure out this circumstance better than you can. I can do this thing a little bit better than you can. And if you look around the world, it's not surprising then that you'll find people made in the image of God from womb to tomb of all sorts of different varieties and all sorts of different reasons simply discarded. Because when God is dishonored and disobeyed, human beings do not flourish, but they're demeaned and they're discarded. You'll find chaos everywhere, out there, in the church, in our homes. And I think, as I was thinking about, like, why is, why is Genesis 34 in the Bible? 
besides just telling the story, like, like what's it supposed to do in my heart as I study it all week? I think what it's supposed to do is that when you, when you live in that reality, and you live in that sin, and you look around and you see that chaos all the time, it can become very oddly familiar, can it? I, I remember being a, this is off the cuff, I can't do this too much, I'm running out of time. I remember being a, a claims adjuster at Progressive Insurance, and the first few days, right, it was like, oh man, people are calling me, they just got into a car accident, right, they're either angry at me or crying, but oh man, this is a horrible thing for them, right, like by day seven, I was like, yeah, you got no car accident, get over it, right? Um, right, that because your heart grows numb and when you see the sin and the anger and you just get way too familiar with things that you shouldn't become familiar with. And we shouldn't become familiar with sin. We shouldn't become familiar with all of it that goes on all around us. And I think Genesis 34 is meant to kind of shock us, to wake us up and go, it's really that bad. It's really that ugly. It's really that horrible. It's easy to get used to the patterns and our hearts get numb and unmoved by the same old patterns we see out there, but maybe even more scary, the same old patterns we see in here. And so this chapter we're going to dive in is awful. Uh, There's nothing commendable in Genesis 34. There's nothing I can say, hey, do things this way. This is a good example for us. And even in this chapter, it would just be so easy to glaze over and go, oh yeah, more sin, like all the rest of Genesis. But I've been praying that this will land on us in a fresh way so that we would have fresh hatred of sin that would from that place then grow fresh hope in our amazing salvation as a family in Christ and a fresh like desire, a holy ambition to say, no more, no more. We want to walk more closely with Jesus and hate that sin, even as we move towards broken sinners who need help. So let's dive in here. Point number one is a familiar pattern. We find this mainly in verses one to four. Back at the end of chapter 33, Jacob had arrived in Canaan. He probably should have gone all the way to Bethel and finished his journey, but he stops here and he makes a deal for land to live in the city of Shechem. And we find out in chapter 34 why Shechem is called Shechem, and it's because Hamor has a favorite son, an entitled son, a son that's a prince in the land. So they're living in a city named after this favored, entitled son who was a prince among his people, and you begin to get the idea that Shechem was used to getting whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it, in the city that was named after him, right? How are you named Shechem in the city of Shechem, and you don't get whatever you want whenever you want, right? That's, that's the idea here. It's building that right in the narrative for us. And in verse 1, Dinah goes out to spend time with the women in the land, now, we don't, we don't know what that means exactly, but what we do know is it's very strange. Right? This is not like you going out to get coffee in downtown Lakeville, just going out for a casual stroll. It would have been very strange for a woman of marriable age to not be with her family, especially in a foreign land that didn't share all the ideals. And we don't know exactly what's going on, but we can wonder, like, why does the narrative say Leah's daughter? Why does it say 
Simeon and Levi are Leah's brothers. Could it be that in this family, Jacob has been favoring Rachel? Jacob's been favoring these siblings and and not these siblings. So Leah's wandering, just looking for a place to belong, looking for a place where she can be seen and known and cared for. And so here she is, out wandering where she really shouldn't be. And Shechem, verse 2, sees her seizes her and lays with her. It says he humiliated her. So in this moment, I just want to say it. I should say it. And it's right to say, if you're in this room and you've been hurt by someone else like this or some way that reminds you of this, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I'm really, really sorry it happened to you and it wasn't your fault. This is not Dinah's fault. It wasn't your fault, and to be very, very clear, God hates it when those who are precious and worthy of dignity because they're made in his image are treated transactionally at the hands of another human being. I'm sorry it happened. It wasn't your fault, and God hates it. We need to name this sin as ugly as it is. This is forced. It's predatory. It's entitled. It's abusive. There are two Verbs here that are meant to jog our memory to familiarity in a horrible way. Shechem sees and then he takes. He sees and then he takes. These are the same verbs we saw in Genesis 3. Eve saw the fruit and then she took it. Right In Genesis 3 it feels a little less serious with a piece of fruit. But, but this is what happens. <laughs> this is what happens as sin grows and blossoms. It's not just a piece of fruit anymore. Now it's another human being made in God's image. This is prideful against God's ways. It's wicked. It's discarding the image of God as something to be used transactionally. And just to, just to say this, when God is disobeyed, human beings are always demeaned and discarded. When God is disobeyed and dishonored, human beings are always demeaned and discarded. Despite what you will hear out there, and that's not really the point, despite what you will hear, all human rights, all human flourishing, all good things in those veins have come from the Christian idea of the Imago Dei, people made in God's image. Where God is dishonored and demeaned, human beings are demeaned and discarded every single time. God's a good creator who knows what it means for his creation to flourish as they honor him and live in harmony with each other. This is a familiar pattern because we've seen over and over again in Genesis that sin makes us treat other people as objects to be used for their gain, even our families, right? Financial gain, sexual gain, status gain, popularity. Sin sees something God made for good in a certain way and takes it and distorts it and twists it and turns it for evil. Sin is impulsive and greedy because it treats the world as a place that is made for momentary pleasure and treats other people as if they're made for our momentary pleasure. It's hard to imagine yourself doing this, and I hope it's hard for you to imagine yourself doing this, But this is not different than what happens on countless screens and countless hidden dark corners. 
This is not different than that. This is the, the same heartbeat of why the, the pornography industry is like the biggest industry, fastest growing industry in our world. <laughs> it says in verses three to four that Shechem is drawn to Dinah and speaks tenderly to her after this act. But the way he talks to his dad is just so, so obvious, just the, the entitled nature of his life. Yes, his daddy says, get me this girl for my wife. Yes. Right? Notice again, it's this entitlement. I want her, so go get her. I'm the prince here. I mean, I was just thinking in my mind, just this, this, this way he's always talking. If, if you've ever seen the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, very weird movie, um, but there's all these entitled kids, right, walking through the factory, and their parents are just meeting their demands, and it just leads to disaster while the parents give them all they want. And this is like a horrific, rated R version of that kind of tragedy. And in verses 5 to 23, we have this, this strange and sad interaction between uh, the two tribes, the two peoples. Jacob, in verse 5, is passive, his sons are furious in verses 6 to 8. We'll get more to that in just a few minutes. But the various parties begin to haggle. Right? They're making a deal. They're striking a deal now. Shechem shows up and says to Jacob in verses 11 to 12, and his sons, he basically says, name your price. I'm rich. <laughs> I own this place. Name your price. I can pay whatever you want. Just give me what I want, seeking to buy Dinah. Now, this bride price was a normal thing back then, but these circumstances are not normal. Transactional purchase after you've committed a sinful, predatory act is not normal, even in this culture. Hamar is polite to Jacob, but strikingly offers no apology. There's no repentance or accountability for Shechem. Hamar says, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Verse 8. He doesn't stop there, though. He sees an opportunity. In the midst of the ugliness of his son's sin, Hamar's mind is running, goes, this could be good for us. Maybe I can turn this for profit. He says, in fact, let's all just marry. Verses 9 to 10. Let's trade Let's do business, let's have property. Let's go from being two different peoples to being one people. The last time the phrase one people was used in Genesis is the Tower of Babel. <laughs> it's not a, a holy alliance, this is an unholy alliance that's being proposed. And we find that out that that's exactly what's in his mind. Look at verses 21 to 23. These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and give them our daughters. Only on this condition will they agree to dwell with us and become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? You hear the greed? <laughs> get bigger, get stronger have a booming economy again like look at all the ways that we can turn this for our good only let us agree with them and they'll dwell with us in other words if we do this little thing know it's an odd thing I know it's going to hurt for a while 
Then we get their livestock, their property, their animals, their women. We can get richer. It's going to boom. We can be one people, stronger and richer. Why wouldn't we do this? That's clearly the motivation. Sin sees and sin tries to take. <laughs> Apart from repentance, it just keeps going. Sin makes everything a transaction. Sin uses and abuses for the sake of game. So Shechem wants what he wants for himself. Hamar wants what he wants for his people. And this is a sick and twisted business deal. This is seeing and taking that flows from sinful hearts. And it's familiar. It's familiar. We see it everywhere. Something looks good or we want something. We have an opinion about something. And so we have to have it now or say it now. We saw it in Genesis 3. We see it in our world today. We see it in our own hearts. In fact, this kind of reality has become so familiar, so a part of the fabric of the world that we live in, that it's just Tuesday's headline in politics. Right? It's, it's just another scandal or conflict in the church. Just another one. Did you hear what happened last week? Right? It can be gone the next week because another one comes up the next week. Just another family fight, just another hidden sin in a dark room, just another moment of gossip or bitterness or whatever driven by whatever gain or pleasures for whatever desires or ends we want. It's way too familiar. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Point number two, familiar payback. So in verse 7, we see that the sons of Jacob are furious. And before we get into what they did, let me just pause here and say something. The sons of Jacob should be furious. They should be. It's right. Like the word indignant here, I love that word. They should be indignant about what happened to their sister. They should be righteously angry. <laughs> this is wrong. This can't be. They should love what God loves and hate what God hates, right? This is indignant in their minds, and they're right. He has seen and seized their sister in the pictures that he kept her there, humiliated, and said, let me go negotiate for you. Right? They think about where she is in this moment, somewhere by herself, having been humiliated while he goes to, to haggle because he suddenly decided he likes her. So their indignation and anger is right. God is indignant at this kind of ugliness and this kind of use and abuse of his image bearers. As I've sat with people who have been hurt this way, it makes me angry. <laughs> it makes me angry because it's wrong. It's sinful. It's selfish. And the pain and the wound it causes is heartbreaking. But they don't just stay righteously indignant. They let the floodgates go on their indignancy and their anger, and it turns from righteous anger to something else. It's in verse 13 where the brothers begin to chime in. It says, The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So these sons are catching on probably to the privileged attitudes, the lack of remorse, the greed, probably just boiling all the more. And so they tell them, they lie to them, they've got a plan. They say, hey, we actually can't marry and intermarry without circumcision. We, we can't do that. God says we can't do that. Uh, but if you'll just all be circumcised, then we can give Dinah to you. 
pleasing Shechem, and we can all be one people, pleasing Hamar. But if not, then we can't do that. So that's a partial truth. In Genesis 17, God had made it clear to Abraham that all people dwelling with them, all people that would worship the true God would need to be circumcised. Right, but th- this was not that idea. This was not just, hey, do this thing, then we'll become one people and we'll mix our worship and we'll mix our marriages. It was the idea of, hey, if you want to worship the true God, come on in here. <laughs> and, and this is how you can enter in. So they're using a half-truth of one of God's commands to get ready for murder. You ever justify sin with the word of God? Ever justify sin with twisting God's words a little bit here or there to make it seem okay? That's what they're doing here. They're indignant, which is good, but they're not going to leave vengeance to God. They're not going to let him be the protector, and instead they're going to let the evil that has been done to their sister turn their hearts into a boiling pot that's going to overflow out of control. Right? I was just listening to the news last night with all the crazy melting that's happening. If you've ever watched a river run, <laughs> there's so much power there and there's so much beauty there. But what happens when it melts too fast and it gets out of control? Right? People get hurt. Right? Things get ruined. Things get destroyed. Or have you ever left a, a pot of boiling water right on the stove and you walk away because you've got to go uh, deal with a, a kid or you've, you've got company and you, you just forget about it and when you when you hear it, what do you hear, right? You hear it overflowing <laughs> and leaving all sorts of burn marks all over your oven. Well, that's what's happening here. It's overflowing and creating a mess that's going to leave burn marks wherever it lands. And we anticipate Shechem will be fooled. He's never been told no in his life, so hearing their willingness is just par for the course for him. We know Hamar will be pleased for the prosperity and the wealth it brings. And we already read verses 21 to 23 where they go and speak to their city. They were convincing. Shechem, got the people of Shechem to do whatever Shechem wanted to do. So in verses 24 to 25, we read this. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And on the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure. What do they do when they get there? Verse 26, they find Shechem and Hamar and they kill them and they take back Dinah. Verse 25, they kill all the males, not just the ones guilty of the crime here, but all of them. And then in verses 27 to 29, they take everything. They take everything. They take their livestock, They take their goods, they take their women, they take their children. This is not justice anymore, not even close. This is boiled over rage and vengeance that leads to sinful murder. This is a riptide of vengeance that has pulled them into deep, dark waters where now their souls are in danger of ever getting back close to the Lord again. And we know this, we know this is wrong and condemned in Genesis 49. If you wanted to turn there, Jacob's giving his blessings. And as he's talking about Simeon and Levi, he stops and takes special pains to make sure to condemn their violent vengeance and their greedy, grimy use of their swords. As familiar as the initial ugliness of the pattern of sin is, don't you also recognize how ugly and familiar is this pattern of payback? The indignation turns to ignoring 
the preciousness of those made in God's image just in a different direction now. We saw this with Adam in his lashing out at Eve when God questioned him. We saw it with Cain in killing his brother Abel. We saw it in Lamech boasted in his sinful vengeance, right? If, if Cain killed one guy, I'll kill a bunch. That's what Lamech said. And don't we see this in our culture? Don't we, don't we see this? One side is doing it wrong. I don't like it. I'm indignant. So I'll be louder. I'll be angrier. I'll post more. I can outdo you. One side engaging in deceit. The other side fighting it with deceit. <laughs> right? I can, I can tell a better lie than you can. I can get people on my side better than you can. One side condemning certain violence. And then that same side fighting it with what? More violence. <laughs> Do you feel this way? Do you feel this in your heart, this, i got to get you back. I'm going to get you back. When you go to work and someone belittles you or slights you, you feel that. Do you feel this when our families we are in break out with fights? Right? Kids, when someone's mean to you, does part of you want to just be mean back? You feel hurt and you want them to feel hurt like you do. Do you do this in your heart as you burn with anger towards what someone said or did? The payback towards those who have gone against us is so familiar that it's just another headline in politics. It's just another headline about the church. It's just another bad moment in our family. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Point number three, familiar passivity. So we also see this familiar reaction. One Wrong response to sinful patterns is sinful payback. Another wrong response is sinful passivity. And Jacob is probably my least favorite character in this whole chapter, which is amazing when you think about it. But it's because he doesn't ever do anything. He's silent for almost the whole chapter. Right? It's like, stand up for your daughter. Like, go do something, Jacob. Go be some part of what you're supposed to be for your family here. Where he should be leading the cause to get her back. He should be admitting he shouldn't have stopped there, but probably gone on to Bethel and not made this bad deal in the first place. He should be the one saying, God says we cannot be one with your people because we only worship him. You have other gods. Right, it's just a couple chapters ago that he literally met with God, right? Had this seeming turning point. Now here he is again taking three steps backwards, just silently letting this all happen. He should be saying, give us our daughter back now. Stay away from us forever. Make things right now. That's what he should be saying. He speaks one time in this chapter in verse 30. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed. This is pathetic. It's sad. Is there anything in him that's rising up in protection for his hurt and humiliated daughter? Moving towards sinful injustice with trust in God and care for his family? Admitting he shouldn't have stopped there and gone on where he's supposed to. No, there's none of that. All we see 
After a whole chapter, like, this is not even just an immediate reaction of like, oh, this is scary. There's a lot of them. This is like, I know it's happened. I've haggled. I've watched you deceive. I've watched it all happen. And now I'm just frustrated at the outcome, right? This is a, a horrible showing and exposing of his heart. It's all self-preservation. And our minds go again to Genesis 3, where God comes and he's talking to Adam and Eve. And he goes to Adam and he says, hey, what happened here? And Adam's like, not my fault. <laughs> Not my fault. It's this woman you gave me. Right? It's, it's your fault. How can you be here talking to me, God? I didn't, what, what am I supposed to do? I just passiveness about sin. He should be standing up for his family and for the righteousness of God. It seems to me that Jacob would have likely been just fine with the deal if it would have gained him some measure of comfort and safety and security. And this is a good word for us because comfort in a nice leisurely life might just be one of the most subtle gods of the suburban lifestyle. Man, why are we here? Because it's comfortable, man. It's a good life out here. Right? We can be passive about all sorts of things, right? Comfort in a nice leisurely life might just be one of the most subtle gods of suburban lifestyle. Running after comfort with little sacrificial love. Keeping up appearances rather than confessing sin. The main concern being the next activity and relaxation with little need to see or move towards the hurting, right? There's fences in the way anyways, right? We can't see any of that stuff where it's hurting. And life goes on and it's comfortable and we keep up our image and we think in categories of comfort and this passiveness is all so familiar, isn't it? Lord, help us. (laughs) Lord, help us. All right, so where do, where do we go with a story like this? The good news is that I've said three times on purpose, Lord, help us, because the Lord will help us. The Lord will help us. We're asking him, boldly approaching his throne, because the Lord will help us. Rather than be numb to the familiar pattern of sin and the familiar response of payback or passiveness, what do we do? What do we do in a world where the pattern of sin is familiar because the deception of Satan in Genesis 3 still lives on. The the lie that we are better gods than God. The lie that we should just see and take because we know how to flourish better than God could tell us how to flourish. What do we do? Well, I think we should look back, if we're looking back at the sin of Genesis 3 that caused all the problems, we should also look back at the hope of Genesis 3 that gives us the hope for all the problems. In Genesis 3.15, says this, when God is talking to Adam and Eve about what's happened here at the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's saying this to the snake. And between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, this is going to keep happening. (laughs) Where we live right now, all the sin, all the destruction, all the brokenness, it's it's a fulfillment of that promise. It's going to keep happening. Deceit and destruction and discarding of human beings is going to keep happening. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan, you get to hurt and wound and break shalom for a while, but there's a day coming where you're going to be crushed. How is that going to happen? How's the crushing going to happen? Well, Romans 15 says, the God of peace, he's talking to the church, will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're going to be the crushers in the power of Christ. Not, Not in us, but in Christ through us, right? There's a day coming soon when one of the offspring will come and defeat sin and Satan and bring God's people to God's place to enjoy God's presence forever. 
It's Jesus, right? It's certainly not Jacob. <laughs> Jacob wasn't the, the, the deliverer. It's not Abraham who sinned over and over again. It's not Isaac. It's certainly not Jacob's sons, right? It's not Shechem. He wasn't the right prince. It's not us. It's Jesus. If we follow the story of the Bible, that offspring language gets used over and over and over again in the New Testament on purpose that you go, he's the answer. <laughs> he's the answer to the Genesis 3 world we live in. He's the solution. And there's hope for every part of this story in him. There is hope today for a break in the familiar pattern, the familiar payback, the familiar passiveness. There's hope in looking to Jesus. First, we've all sinned. We've all done this. We've all seen and just taken what we wanted. We've all seen God's good gift and taken them and distorted them and made them into something not good. We've all wanted sinful payback. We've all stood back too passively towards our sin or the hurt of those around us. But what did Jesus do? He came. He really came into this world. And he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He did that. Can you imagine living a day without sin? Jesus was tempted in every way we were, yet without sin. He, he never sinned. And then he died the death we deserve to die for sin. And if we confess our sins and trust him, there is full and forever forgiveness in his name. So whatever sin you walk in here with, if, if you find yourself in this story in places you wouldn't like, there's full and forever forgiveness today in Jesus Christ. There's a new identity in his name. We're no longer defined by the sin that we've done, no matter how dark. You're not defined by that anymore if you're in Christ. You're defined by Christ. And we can rest in his promises of forgiveness and redemption. And oftentimes what God will do is he'll, he'll take the dark area of sin. He'll forgive you. He'll wash you. He'll bring you into the family. And then what he'll do is he'll, he'll turn that thing and use it as a way that you bring about healing and hope and forgiveness in the exact same place. Doing what he always does. Taking what you meant for evil, what the world means for evil, and turning it for good. So step out of, step out of the darkness. Step into the light. And then walk forward and bring that light to others. Jesus was not passive towards sin. He was active. He left his father's side and came and lived and died and rose again. Jesus was not filled with sinful vengeance towards sin, but sacrificial love towards sinners. He's the, he's the perfect example of active, sacrificial love. No passive aggressiveness in Jesus if you trust him, he will forgive you. That's amazing. If you trust him, he'll forgive you. And I just hope you don't get sick of hearing that. <laughs> We're sinners, and if we trust Jesus, he forgives us and gives us rest for our guilty souls. There's also hope today, if you're here today, and you've suffered at the hands of injustice and cruelty, if you've been demeaned, Jesus knows your pain and is a merciful high priest. Jesus was unjustly beaten and mocked and scorned and hung, exposed for all to see on a cross, humiliated for all to see. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And he will walk with you through the pain. He will draw near to you on your most dark of days. He will bring healing for your soul. And most importantly, maybe for you to hear today, is that he sees you. And he cares about wherever you're hurting in this moment. You are not defined by what's been done to you. You're defined by Jesus Christ. He won't stand back passively. He won't. If you've had people that have disappointed you because they've stood back too passively in the midst of your pain, Jesus never does. Jesus moves towards you and cares for you and is tender towards you. And one day soon, Jesus is going to return. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and he's going to bring final justice. All sin will be dealt with. All justice will be complete, either on the cross for those who trust him or on the final day when those who haven't trusted him are righteously judged forever. Jesus will deal with sin. And for those who trust him, he promises his Holy Spirit to preserve us and empower us to walk in new patterns. And so sometimes in our circles, we can just look at the sin forever and act like we just got to stay there. Family, we don't have to stay there. In Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there's hope for new patterns. There's hope to to break the power of canceled sin, right? He gives us new power to walk in newness of life. New power to not stay hidden in your sin, but confess your sin. New power to walk out of old familiar patterns of sin. New power to walk away from that person you've hated and been so bitter towards to want payback and horror for them. Instead to walk more towards love. New life and newness of life in Jesus to move towards the hurt we see rather than just staying comfortable. New life to walk away from the restless feeling in our souls as we just lock ourselves in the same patterns of sin and instead walk in newness of life in forgiveness and healing of pain and hope for change. God has promised to bring his people to his place to enjoy his presence. God keeps his promises every single time. He holds us fast. He will do it because all of his promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. And so today, we're not sitting here wondering, is he going to keep his promises? Does he love me? My circumstances are hard. I've sinned a lot. I've been hurt a lot. Does God really love me? We look at the cross and we say, he loves me. He's for me. He's going to work for my good and he's going to bring me into his presence All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. The one who came and died for our sins, the one who rose again to bring new life, the merciful high priest who knows our pain, the one who promised to send the Holy Spirit so we could walk in new power, the one who is coming back soon to deal with sin, to wipe away every tear from our eyes, to bring us into his presence forever, where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. In that place, it will be like Genesis 1 and 2 all the time, with no chance that will ever go back to Genesis 3. Let me pray. So Lord, we need, we need your help to be woken up from falling asleep to the familiar patterns of sin around us, in us, to see how serious it is, to see how broken it is again, to be moved again to fight the good fight of faith in the power we have in Jesus to confess our sins and not hide them, to move towards hurt and not stay away because it's uncomfortable, to reprioritize our time and our energy and our money to, to be about moving 
towards those hurting and moving towards the pain, Lord, to, to look to you for fresh hope, that you will break our patterns of sin by the power of your spirit, that you have forgiven us, Lord. Some in this room are just feeling the, the depth of their sin, the depth of their brokenness, and if they trust in Jesus, Lord, there is full and free forgiveness available right now. You say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Lord, some are weary in here because they've been hurt. Some are weary in here because they've been hurting. Some are weary in here because they've been caught in sin for years and years. Some are weary in here because suffering is just beating them up in this Genesis 3 world, and you're offering every single one in Christ through his blood by the power of the cross in the power of the Holy Spirit, rest. Rest for our souls, promising us you're going to hold us fast and get us all the way home. So Lord, as we come and eat and drink with you, do that work in every heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.